very rigorous good mornings to each other. I love it. I saw hugs, high fives. Hey, we're going to take our offering, um, which we were supposed to do a little bit ago. Um, If you're new, you can just let this go by. Um, But this is a way we support what's happening around here. All the things and all the endeavors and all the the mission that we're a part of here. And listen, church, if you want to get in relationship around here, we really, really encourage you to uh, jump in. We've got some things coming up, some dinner groups, some small groups, a lot of different ways to hang out with people around here. You can do that on the Connect tab um, on our website and with, uh, with the Connect card you've got there in your row. Okay, last week, okay, we covered some really thick, heavy teaching from Paul. Now, had a lot of great conversations with many of you since last week, and I, I want to uh, kind of apologize a little bit. I think that um, it was such... A lot of information, and I was just trying to get through it. I didn't want to come across like um, it's all neat, wrapped up, and tidy, okay? That everything I've said and everything that Paul's teaching is just super simple, easy to understand. No, there's a tremendous amount of mystery here. We're talking about life after life after death. There's mystery. There's uh, things that are just uh, tough to wrap our heads around and, and kind of there's tension there. And so I want to make sure that you know that I really want to leave room for that, okay? So me teaching up here isn't the guy that has it all figured out. Um, it's somebody who's doing his best to unpack what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, Okay and how that all plays into the rest of Scripture, okay? So today, we're going to be jumping into a passage about 10 verses. I'm going to warn you, the first half is super dense, and (laughs) it's just, well, it's just dense. It's going to take hard work. You're going to be pretty bitter at me for the first half of this. The second half is, is there's mystery, there's tension, there's, but there's payoff, there's, there's beauty, there's wrapping this up. Is that okay? So first half, bitterness, anger, wish you weren't here. The second half, payoff. Deal? All right. First half, here we go. Verse 24, chapter 15, Paul says, then the end will come. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself. Who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Crystal clear, right? Super clear? No. Everybody's got it. Okay. Draw a picture in your mind. That makes sense, right? Actually, what Paul has done here is something really genius. And it's, so, it's genius, which is, makes it hard for us to kind of understand it 2,000 years later. 
Paul weaves together three strands of Old Testament thought. Basically, when Paul says according to the scriptures earlier on in the passage, what Paul does is he's saying that according to the Bible, according to the Old Testament, the scriptures that Paul is talking about isn't the gospels, isn't the letters that he's written. It's none of those things. The the scripture that Paul is talking about is the Old Testament. And so he pulls together three strands of thought to kind of make sense of everything. The first one starts in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, you guys know the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. God goes on to create animals, and he goes on to create the stars and the sky and the firmament and all of that. And he says, it is good, this place, this dwelling place for human to be with God is good, right? And then we get fast forward to verse 26, and it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind, human, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So the first strand that we're going to talk about this morning is human. That God creates human, God creates man and woman to rule. And God makes humans in the image of himself Uh, God makes human in the image of God. And there's lots of layers to this. Okay. This means that human beings reflect the image of God to the world. All of humanity. Now, where the Old Testament writers get this is from this idea of in, in the ancient Near East when a king would rule over a large plot of land, a large, huge enormous piece of land, what the king would do is set up images, statues, in the different places of the land, in the far corners, pretend this stage is that, in the far corners of each of the places where people could travel in and out of the king's rule. And wherever these images were set up, these images were meant to reflect who the king was, but he would establish rulers in each of these places. And the rulers would rule the ruler as if they were ruling as the king, meaning the rulers would rule as it is where the king is, okay? So in all parts of the king's domain, the rulers would rule as it was where the king was. Does that make sense? And so this image that that, that, that the, the beginning of Scripture is setting up is that is how humans are supposed to function. We are supposed to function as rulers in God's world, reflecting the image of who God is to the world. Does that make sense? So, and we really need to get this. Because if you are human, you were made by the creator God to rule over the world, 
to reflect who God is, to partner with God and to take God into the world, to take God's movement into the world forward and to show the glory of the creator in creation. That's the first strand that Paul is moving them through. Now, Psalm 8 is a great psalm, and it's, it tells the story of Genesis and poetry. Check this out. Starts off, verse 1, Lord, our Lord. Now, in your Bible, if you have a Bible on you, some of the, you guys who are extra spiritual, Lord, our Lord, one of the Lords is actually set up to be, it's all caps, which means Yahweh. Okay, here's a translation in Hebrew. O Yahweh, our Adonai. Okay, which basically means Yahweh, the creator God, is the king, the Adonai. Okay, so there's some of that language of, of rulership. It's Yahweh, the creator God, is King Adonai. We are under his rule in his kingdom. It says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Remember that conversation we had? One of the uses for the word heaven is sky. Uh, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, your sun, moon, your cosmos, the work of your fingers... You know, it's like the creation is God's child's play, right? It's just child's play, the work of his fingers, uh, which you have set in place, uh, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of him, of them? Human beings that you care for them. Many translations have it like this. What is human being that you are mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him? You have made them a little lower than the angels. And crown them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Remember that phrase, under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now there's lots here. The way Psalm 8 tells the story of creation, David says that God's original intent, okay, for human beings is to live under God's rule and at the same time over creation. Under God's rule, over creation. Middle management, right? We are in middle management. Over creation, under God's rule. And here we are, 2018. How are we doing with that? How is human being, how is humanity doing with under God's rule? Thoughts? <laughs> Terrible. When you think of humanity around the world, do you think of people under the rule and reign of the living God? No. I mean, it's just, we're not really good at this. We're in open rebellion against God for the most part. Now, how are we doing with ruling and reigning over the earth? Terrible? Yeah. I mean, think about it. On the one hand, we've brought a lot of evil. War, famine, injustice, pollution, deforestation. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Animal cruelty, Monsanto, if you watch documentaries. Um, Like, every documentary is just like, 
<laughs> I'm done with documentaries. I'm just like, everything's bad, you know? Um, fast food, you know, that's, that's a bad one too, but it's kind of good too. Here's the thing. Those are some bad things. What are, the, what are the good things we've brought to the earth? We've brought things like medicine, technology, urban planning. I mean, there's some like really, really cool things we've done. Sustainability, architecture, neighborhood block parties, right? Those are great. CrossFit gyms, food trucks. No one's with me? Food trucks are the best. There's no, there's no, there's, there's a short of, of food, truck, uh, food trucks in my opinion. So let me, let me ask you this though. How often has that stuff been done in the glory of God, for the glory of God? Not very often. And when I think of Denver, and I've lived here for about 25 years, and it's growing and growing and growing, we're all angry about it. And there's, I mean, there's just new things everywhere in the traffic, oh. But Denver has done some really cool things. We've, we've got um, mass transit now. We can get downtown pretty quickly. There's, the food in Denver has like, taken off in the last 20 years, 15 years. I mean, it's just way better. There's just so many things that are, I think, really cool about Denver. You're close to the mountains. You're outdoors. It's sunny all the time. It's just great. But when you think of Denver, you think, man, there, there's a city that reflects the glory of Jesus. No? Yeah, maybe, no, I mean, how do, how do we wrestle with all this stuff? The point is this, for the most part, humans, we have failed. We failed at being what God intended us to be, reflecting the glory of God to the world and reflecting like our work under the rule and reign of God back to Jesus. And so the real chipper idea is piece one is human. Okay, real chipper, I know. Uh, let's move on to two. The, the second piece, if you're taking notes, the first one would be human. The second one would be Messiah. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. David, the author, peers over the horizon at what it will look like and envisions a Messiah, okay? God's future king of the world who will one day put the world back together, who will one day put the world right, okay? And in Psalm chapter one, uh, Psalm 110, uh, verses 1, it goes like this. The Lord says to my Lord, this is what God says to Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, listen, a footstool for your feet. So you remember the earlier Psalm was under, I've put everything under your feet. This is this is God saying to Jesus, to Messiah, I've, I will put your enemies under your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. I'm not getting into that. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek, meaning the Messiah, Messiah is going to be a Messiah, is going to be a king and a priest. Wow. The Lord, Adonai, is at, your, is at your Israel's right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. 
He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and he will lift his head high. This is ancient, violent, bloody military poetry. That's what this is. And by the way, it's about Jesus. It's about Messiah. One day he will lead an army and destroy rulers and powers of this world. We'll get into that here in a second. He will judge the nations, it says in verse 6. And what's interesting, when we hear the word judge, a lot of us think that's just bad. Oh, we're going to get judged. Yeah, you can't judge me. You know, don't judge me. Uh, we think it's only a bad thing. No, it's actually, in Scripture, it actually means to put the world back how it's supposed to be. It means to put your body back and the systems of this world back and all these things rearranged back to how they're supposed to be. That's what Scripture calls judge. And that Jesus will come back to judge, to put the world to rights, to shape the world back the way God intended. Now, this could be good or bad depending on which side you're on. It could be really, really bad if you're an oppressor. If you are doing evil, if you are doing injustice, if you are part of a system that is, that is hurting and, and corrupting and, and, and being evil. But if you are the oppressed, this is a good thing. You, judgment is the grace and mercy and love of God. And, and you can either welcome God's judgment or you can run from it, but it's still going to happen. It's going to happen. Judgment is the hope for God's people. So the first one is human. Second one is Messiah. Third one, we're almost done with the super boring stuff, is write down the word kingdom if you're taking notes, which maybe three of you are. I can tell. The <laughs> Here's the thing. We're going to fast forward to Mark chapter 1. This is where Israel is actually oppressed. Israel is, um, you know, Caesar and Rome. They are uh, in agony looking forward to God's future king or Messiah based on everything that they've read in the Psalms and the prophets. Jesus comes on the scene and claims to be Messiah, which is a pretty big deal. And Mark sums up the central message of Jesus in one paragraph. And it's out of Mark chapter 1, and it starts in verse 14. It says this, After John was put in prison, this is John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on all of this passage, but you need to understand what Jesus means by the kingdom of God has come near. It means it's right here. It's close by. That the kingdom of God, the reordering of how God intended things to be is close by. And the word kingdom is actually synonymous with rule, reign, authority, and control. Meaning the kingdom of God is the place where God rules, where God reigns, where God is in control, where God is on the throne, okay? And your kingdom come, when we, when we pray that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, is actually a Hebrew parallelism that actually means the same thing. Two different ways of saying the exact same thing. And so 
Personally, as a, an American consumer living in this time period that I'm in, I hear this in individual terms. Okay? I hear what the kingdom of God is, and I, I think it, it is, as an individual. I think of my life. I think of um, kind of my money and my calendar and my, my, my career and my dreams and all that kind of stuff. And when, when God's will is done in my life, um, I feel like I'm, I'm in the kingdom. And that's partially true. But Jesus' audience in 30 AD heard it way differently than I hear it. Jesus' audience is in Galilee. They're oppressed. There's Roman troops marching by. And they hear this, and they don't hear it as individuals. They don't hear it individualistic. They hear it as Israel as nationalistic. They hear it as it, it, it absorbs all of who we are as a nation. Okay? And so they, they think, okay, when they hear that means Messiah is coming, they think lead an army, throw off the oppressors, age, you know, then resurrection comes and, 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 and God will usher in a new age of new heavens and a new earth and it all happens at once. And all they've been hoping for will happen at once, right? And which one is right? I mean, think about it. Is the kingdom of God here in our midst, working in and through and, and despite me, and in your life and, and in your world? Yes. But is it still something that's to come? Absolutely. In the first century, Jews had a hard time wrapping their minds around it. They thought it would all come at once. Um, but hindsight's pretty 2020, right? So the kingdom of God comes not once, but twice. It comes in pieces. And, and, and what we have is when Jesus shows up on stage and he says, uh, the kingdom of God is near, what he's inaugurating is the kingdom. It's, it's what nerdy, super nerdy biblical scholars call inaugurated eschatology. And you can try to spell that and write that down. And later when you go home and people ask, what do they talk about at church? You can say, oh, inaugurated eschatology. Nothing big. It's when Jesus shows up and announces what the future will look like. Okay? But when Jesus comes again, when, when, when Messiah returns, he's going to complete the kingdom. Which means the kingdom is now and what? Not yet. It's... It's here, and it's coming. It's present, and it's future. It's all these things. And we live in the middle. We live in the tension. And that means that there is more than one kingdom on earth right now, meaning there is God's will that's being done. The kingdom of God is at work. There's pockets where you can see it at work and, and, and things happening. But there's also the kingdom of what the scriptures call the kingdom of darkness, where there is other wills at work. There is what you would, I guess, call the axis of evil. There's the human will. There is uh, the will of the demonic and the gods where Satan's will is done. The tyrant's will where injustice festers. So 
We live in the tension. Now, two kingdoms at war, one day God's will, one day God's kingdom will overthrow the rulers and the powers of this world. That is what these messianic psalms are talking about. So, human, right? We got human, made in the image of God, rule over the earth, rule under God's reign. A Messiah, we got army, leader, ruler, judge, put the human project back on track, and then we got kingdom, right? That word kingdom, it's now and it's not yet. Okay, we're through the super boring part, I think. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 as we wrap this up. This is really important. We're going to recap with verse 23. Verse 23 says, But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come in verse 24. Remember the first fruits conversation was about resurrection. It's this analogy, this metaphor that Paul used to say that since Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected, that is the first fruits, that is a taste of what all of your futures will look like if you follow Jesus. Does that make sense? And we talked about that last week. If you, if you didn't catch, that, catch up with us, it'd be really important. And then he says this, then the end will come. The end, hear me, Paul is not saying the end of the time-space universe when everything will get obliterated and there's some apocalyptic event. That's not what Paul is saying. But many of our thinkings about the end of the world has to do with this verse. What Paul is saying is that word end is the Greek word telos, where we get the word teleology, which is the purpose, the intent behind what God is doing will come. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? As I totally missed where my notes are. There they are. Um, so then the purpose and intent will come. And he says, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, um, this is when, when Jesus completes heaven's invasion of earth after he is destroyed. And that word destroyed can be translated dethroned. Okay? So dethroned all the rulers and the powers that are working against God. Okay? So after he has dethroned all dominion and authority and power, um, and that's a phrase used by Paul to talk about human powers and demonic powers and all these things, he will dethrone all that, uh, poverty, pain, injustice, all, anything against God's shalom. Um, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that is a quote from Psalm 110. Jesus is the messianic king who will dethrone his enemies. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is on the list to be dethroned. Now, if you've ever been to a funeral and someone has said, oh, death is our friend, they're lying to you. Death was never God's intention. We're going to get into death next week. Super pumped. Don't miss next week. Really, really don't. Verse 27, for he has put everything under his feet. Now that is a direct quote from Psalm 8 that we already went through. Everything under, under his feet, under his rule and his reign. So in context, when Paul says everything under his feet, who is he? Well, in Psalm 110, he's talking about Jesus, Messiah, okay? But in Psalm 8, he's talking about humans. It's really interesting. Is Paul really bad at Bible study? Right? <laughs> I think 
No, I don't think he is. <laughs> Remember that whole son of man piece? What Paul is saying is that Jesus comes as the one true human. This is super important for us to understand. Jesus comes as the one true human. He incarnates himself. He's born as a baby. Humanity, fully God, fully human. He restores God's original intent for being human. Jesus does what Adam was supposed to do. Jesus does what Ryan Ashley was supposed to do. Jesus does what you are supposed to do. Rule and reign. Now when it says that everything has been put under his feet, put under him, it is clear, yeah, right, Paul, it's really clear, that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son of himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Wow, okay. Um, don't misunderstand Paul here. Many people have misunderstood Paul as to thinking that Jesus is somehow the second God or a lesser version of God. Paul is grasping for words to express how God is active in the world in and through Jesus. Paul's point is that Jesus restores God's original intent for humanity. How? He rules over the earth as a human and lives under the rule of God. You see this all the way through his, he talks about he's going to do what the Father tells him to do over and over and over again. So don't get, read too much into that. It's a complex way of saying, in Jesus, God is saving the world. Now, that is the really, that's some dense stuff. Now, let's move on to some really, really practical stuff. Verse 29. Paul says, now if there's no resurrection, remember the Corinthians believe that Jesus, uh, believe that Jesus' resurrection, they also believe in life after death. Remember that? What they don't believe in is the resurrection of the body, meaning for all of us who follow Jesus. And so the Corinthians did not believe in what is after heaven. They didn't believe in, 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 this, in this world where God was going to remake everything. The problem is, is that's what many Christians believe, um, that there's this world, and when you die and you know Jesus, you go to heaven. And that's it. And Paul is trying to convince them that there's more to this. There's more telos to this. There's a bigger end game to this. And he says, if there is no resurrection, let's just play this out, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, this is a very tricky verse, and I'm not going to spend much time on it. Two main ideas. <clears throat> it's really weird. Some people believe that this means that there's a way for us to proxyize, meaning we baptize our, ourselves for people who have already died. Okay. This comes into other traditions that I won't get into, but this does not line up with anything ever said in all the rest of Scripture, um, if that's the way you take it, um, or in the practices of the early church. What I believe Paul is saying is he's talking about regular baptism in Paul language, okay? 
he is actually just unpacking that prior to baptism, you were dead. Um, in the waters, you were made alive. And that when you go under the waters, and if your pastor is in shape enough to pull you back out, you, are, <laughs> you, are, you experience this, this idea of, of what it looks like to be resurrected. His, po- his point is it's symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is what he's saying. And it points to our future. And, and the point is this. They are baptizing, but they don't believe in resurrection. They're baptizing people, but they don't believe in resurrection. So, so you're dead, you're dead to your sins, and you rise. Well, you just stay down. They're baptizing people with no real meaning behind it. And, and he's like, why are you doing what you're doing? You are baptizing, but you don't believe in resurrection. So it's kind of like this in today's language. If you don't believe in the physical resurrection and you merely believe that you go to heaven in some non-bodily, floaty existence, and that is the end, and you're just going to sing amazing grace over and over and over, and you're going to like it somehow, then why go to Nicaragua and try to get some water projects going for the people of Nicaragua? Why do that? If this world's going to just get scrapped, if there's no, uh, if there's no bodily resurrection, uh, and you just get to, you're, you're, you're knowing Jesus as an ejection seat out of this place, okay, then, then why, why tutor kids at the end of your really long, hard work day with whiz kids? Why whammers? Why go all over the world? Right? Why do the things that we've been called to do? How do you live? How you live does not line up with what you believe. And Paul shifts gears and talks about his own story. And he says, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast. And it's kind of this word glory over you, about you, in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Now, Paul didn't actually fight wild beasts, we think. He thinks he's using, they're using that as a, as an, as a kind of a, a metaphor for gladiator games in the city of Ephesus. Paul writes the letter to Corinth from Ephesus, and in Ephesus, there's gladiator games. And there's very real things that he's facing in Ephesus. Read Acts 19. There's riots, and he's just doing crazy stuff, and people are burning their books, and it's insane. And he, Paul says, my life is brutal like a gladiator. And he says, I live like this because I believe in resurrection. I live like this now because I believe in resurrection. I don't live, on, live like this because I'm just going to go to heaven someday. If the dead are not raised, he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is an Epicurean phrase. It's famous for the good life, right? Um, This is one of the philosophies of the day. Uh, Fine wines and hedonism and art and theater and culture. Paul says, why am I giving up that kind of life? See, Epicureans didn't believe in life after death. And so we've got the phrase today that goes like this. Hey, you only live once, right? 
You only live once. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's not true. It's absolutely not true. And the goal, if that's your, your, your end game, your telos, your purpose, that means you don't understand the story of God and how God is moving through history. See, there's Paul, in order, for Paul, there's two ways to live. Bleed, fight, push, um, because life, the life here on earth matters for eternity. Or, and this is what we're in danger of all the time, living where we live, settling for the good life. Paul says there's two ways to do this. You can go the easy, milk toast, you know, suburban accumulation way, or you can fight and bleed and work and strive for the kingdom. This is hard. Nothing wrong with any of like the things that we have and the, all that kind of stuff. It's what you live for. Paul says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And this is a Greek playwright named Meander. I looked this guy up this week, and this is so funny because Paul agrees with him. I, I just love this. He actually, he's basically saying, you become like the people you hang out with. Like, look around you. The people you hang out with, if they're, if they're pushing for this and pushing for that and they're just trying to get uh, some escape and, and a little bit of a weekend, and I mean, you just become the people like you hang out with. So he takes this Greek philosophy quote and leverages it and turns it and says, I actually agree with this. Corinthians, you're getting sucked into your culture. You're becoming like the people around you. You are thinking about life dualistically. You are leaning on Plato instead of God and the scriptures. You are corrupted by the world around you. And he says this. This is where it gets heated. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Paul says, wake up. Wake up. And this is really volatile language. And he's basically saying how you think about God how you think about God's future shapes you. It completely shapes you. If you believe that one day you will stand before God on judgment day, remember what judgment is, right? Reordering things back to how they're supposed to be. And if you believe that it says in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us do us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we will, how many of us will, will, will stand before God? All of us. And we will receive, right, things for, for what we've done in the body. So whether good or bad. So we'll stand in front of God who made the world and every thought, every word, every dollar, every hour, every relationship, you and I will answer to the living God for. And, and, and really, I was reading 1 John this week, and John talks about this hope, um, and the, this hope is crazy. His hope is when you live in light of judgment, that purifies you. And meaning the next time sin knocks at your door and you think about 
judgment, you think about the future and God reordering things back to how they're supposed to be, that should purify you. That should help you move away from whatever's knocking at your door. And, and I ask myself, how is that hope? It means that God will put you back into the shape that God intended you to be. And for some of us, that will be really painful. I mean, that will, that will be an enormous surgery. For some of you, not so much. So if you don't believe in resurrection and you, and, and, and you end up just believing that there's like, it's a heaven or hell thing, and I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm just saying that that's not the whole picture. If there, there's like an either or mentality and, and, is, and that's the furthest you get thinking about it, you tend to fall in something that Dallas Willard calls, he calls it the gospel of sin management. And you guys, listen, this is so easy to fall into. And as we wrap this up, this might be you. This idea of managing sin, of keeping sin under control, of being a good, pleasant, suburban sinner, right? Like, not, not the other kinds, like the, the ones you hear about, but like, they're like just, I, I can manage this. I can, I believe if you, but here's the problem. If you believe in judgment, you don't manage your sin, you go to war against it. And he who has this hope, John says, purifies himself. Be diligent to be found blameless and unashamed when he appears. So this idea of no guilt, no fear, not perfect, but ready to stand before God, the creator God, and hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Step into my new world and rule. That's the shape of the end. That's what it looks like. This is the picture Paul is trying to, to paint for us. And where am I? Where, am, where are you in that polarity? Do we, do we live, fight, bleed, suffer? Or do we live for the good life? Do we live pure, holy, blameless, striving after that? Or are we just trying to manage our sin? Right? See, Jesus talks all the time about people who think they're going in. And he's like, I think you missed it. And now what you believe about the future shapes how you live in the here and now. And let me just say as I close, I love you guys. I love this church. We're not perfect. But my prayer and my hope is this, that we may live not only for God's future, for God's future, but in light of God's future, right? Not just live for the future, but in light of it. So you can live for God's future and anticipate and look forward to it, and that's a good thing. But sometimes we end up taking that and we're just looking forward to the future and, and we're in, we escape, you know, kind of in our own little Christian huddles and our little communities where it's safe. Um, and we stay there because we're living for God's future. We're looking forward to God's future. But until then, we're on defense. But my encouragement is for us to live in light of God's future. Meaning, we're looking forward to it, yes, but we live every day to get ready and prepare yourself for the world that you're going to be a part of. It's kind of like those of you who like to run. You're sick and twisted. <laughs> I don't understand you. Anybody in here run a marathon before? Yes, <laughs> Terry, anybody else? Nobody else? Okay, 
Terry, did you decide to ride, run a marathon and you just got up one day and said, I'm going to run a marathon today? Okay. Well, good. Because if you had, they would have totally shot my analogy. <laughs> People who run tell me, anybody run a half marathon? Can we get anybody else in the room? Okay. Well, okay. That's, hands are going up. Quitters. Anyhow, <laughs> just run half of it. I want to run all that. Um, the point is, is that you don't just stand up one day and go, man, I'm going to get out there and run 13 point whatever and 26 point whatever, and it's just going to be easy. So what would happen if you did that? Anybody have an idea? How, how, how far do you think you could get? Huh? 50 yards. Someone's got a low bar, right? <laughs> right. I mean, it's one of those things where like in light of the day that I'm running this marathon, you need to start living differently way back here, right? Stop eating the way you're eating. Start maybe the first day you run a mile. Maybe the second day you sit in an ice bath. Maybe the <laughs> third day you, you run two miles, right? And over and over and over and over. So one day when that day comes, that day comes. You can do it. Living for the future, but also in light of the future. Investing every minute, every dollar, every opportunity into that. May you live every single moment in light of resurrection, in light of the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is getting at.